Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital, as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Chaloner and I'm delighted to be joined on the programme today by Helen Spink. Helen is the Managing Director of Tiddlywinks Day Nursery, a private nursery for babies, toddlers and preschoolers located in Shrewsbury, Shropshire. Helen, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme today. Good morning, Scott. Thank you very much for having me on your uh, podcast. Good morning, Helen. Pleasure having you with us. Um, Now, the purpose of this discussion is to establish, first and foremost, your take on leadership. So if we take that word leader aside for a moment and explore that to begin with, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you. What should a leader be in your view? A leader in my, my point of view would be be a good leader, you have to be able to listen to people. You have to be able to accept new ideas, constantly move forward and accept change. Know when it's time for like individuals to try new adventures. A strong character, I always think, is required. But yet yeah, you've got to have the ability to be gentle and to be a good communicator. And if we think about sort of your own personal leadership style, if you will, especially from a people management perspective, you're in a a unique position where, of course, you're not just working with other adults and fellow staff members, but you're also working with young children as well. So that must throw up some interesting challenges when it comes to leadership in um, sort of your um, profession. Yes, definitely. Um, We're a small nursery with with about 12 staff and we've got approximately 70 children on our books. Uh, so um, my leadership basis is I'm in every day to be able to advise on a day-to-day basis. I also surround myself with a good team, uh, which has got different qualities and different characters to bring to the setting. It then enables it to be able to run as a smooth operation. Uh, my solid base, as I call it, uh, they've been with me for 12 years, some since I opened 18 years ago. So they all know my little quirks and not afraid to challenge me. My door is always open to the staff, children and parents and constantly wear different hats depending on uh, what the challenge is or the question is. I know the customers are like the fact that I'm in situ every day. Uh, Then they can pop in if they need to. Well, not at the moment. They can't pop in, obviously, but normally they can pop in. Uh, The staff, I know I wouldn't ask them to do anything that I wouldn't do myself. Uh, And then you need to show appreciation to people by little gestures like, you know, Valentine's Day, sending the the girls roses or something on Easter, buying eggs, Uh, praising people often. Uh, This goes with staff and children. Children love praising. Uh, And by by this, I think you gain the respect and also my ethos is to laugh every day. It's quite um, important, um, some of the issues that you've um, raised there in terms of that style, because I think people who sort of adopt that way of leading, in a sense, will be getting the best out of their teams in times of crisis, such as now with the COVID-19 situation, of course. Keeping the communication channels open has been hugely vital during this time. It's been incredibly important as well for people, of course, to be going above and beyond just to keep things ticking over. And importantly, people react to different things differently, don't they, let alone a crisis such as this. So I can imagine that sort of managing your way through that from sort of a people perspective and also adapting behind the scenes, that's also thrown up one or two challenges, especially in your industry during this time, hasn't it? Yes, definitely. 
definitely. Uh, my little COVID adventure, as I call it, uh, has been greatly impacted on the nursery. At the start of the lockdown, we were at the maximum capacity, about 40 plus, And we've been that for a while, a good over a year, with a waiting list. But then it threw us out because then we had to open for a handful of children with probably four staff. From the week commencing the 23rd, we opened just the key workers running about 14 children uh, from Monday and Tuesday. By Wednesday, we was down to about five. So at that point then, I decided that by listening to the anxious person, parents, the uh, staff being worried for their own safety, it was time to close the doors till further notice. So we closed our doors on Friday the 22nd or uh, 27th of March. Uh, we contacted the Shropshire Council to find out who was open for the key children so they would be able to attend uh, a different nursery during this time so that then the parents, it wouldn't impact on them not being able to go to work. During the lockdown period, I signed up to the government website for the daily updates to be able to pass along the information to uh, all my parents to keep them updated. I did this by email and Facebook. Alongside this, I set up a WhatsApp group for myself and my staff to be able to communicate with each other as well as, as me, letting them know what's happening. Shropshire Council also communicated very well with me and they sent out worksheets every week to help the parents to school the children within lockdown, giving them fresh ideas weekly. Um, I passed this along through all the emails every week. The feedback was great. They were happy that the communication had not ceased and it didn't make them then feel alone or isolated, especially with mental health being so prominent at the moment. Just before opening, I sent out a COVID-19 policy and did a risk assessment. This was sent, sent out to all the parents with the details of what we had in place for reopening. We reopened on uh, June 1st. Just before that, we came in for a day and took out all the soft furnitures, all the rugs, all the soft toys. We didn't have many soft toys anyway, but we had a few. All the intricate toys that, uh, that they could get the little fingers into that we wouldn't be able to clean correctly. Um, we then opened with 14 to 16 children per day uh, alongside half the staff. At this point, there was no uh, um, point in bringing all the staff in. So we run a system which was fair to everybody, two weeks on and two weeks off, because there was there were, I have about 12 staff, so we were on six and six. For the parents, we split the way everybody used to enter the nursery because obviously nobody's allowed inside now. Mm. So the babies uh, coming in were using the front door and passing the children over that way. And then the toddlers in preschool were using a side entrance, encouraging children to walk in wherever possible. Um, no bags unless necessary. And also we noticed that the children were more settled first thing in the morning because now they don't have the parents uh, lingering and, uh, and and anxious parents not wanting to, to leave. So I found that that going forward just seemed to be a lot better. We had a rainbow uh, two-meter lines outside, so that looked quite pleasant for the parents when they first came back because uh, we had to think of the impact that obviously the shutdown had on the family uh, families children and staff, ensuring the well-being of everybody uh, was obviously at the forefront. Some parents were anxious at the beginning regarding the safety aspect and a few asked if we were taking the children's temperature and arrival to the nursery. Uh, we said then that we were following the government guidelines and it wasn't considered relevant in earlier settings. 
we assured our, our parents that we would do our utmost to keep them all safe by constantly cleaning throughout the day, toilets, hand, handles, etc. The children uh, we put into small bubbles, not more than three in babies, four in toddlers and eight in preschool, each within their individual rooms. We try to keep the same staff in the same rooms wherever possible. Sometimes it's a bit difficult, but we're trying to do that along going along. Um, unfortunately, at this time, we cannot have child initiative play. Choosing their own toys is not an option at this moment, uh, which has impacted a little bit on them, which they don't understand. We have to set out different toys in each room throughout the, do the day, and then the toys, the toys are sanitised after each bubble has played with them. We're very privileged that we have a separate outside area which is split with babies and toddlers in one area and preschoolers in another. Plus, we have a small woodland area which allows the children to spend maximum opportunity to be outside where the virus is not as easily spread. So we're trying to, we do actually have different times to go out with different rooms so that they're not um, all going out together, which has worked very well. Going forward, we're offering an external look around for new parents and looking into a virtual tour. At this moment in time, uh, when people are ringing up and we are sending brochures out uh, by email with also the parents, uh, parent documents, etc. Um, and I do feel that the furlough scheme has helped a lot. And I don't know where some business would have been without that. Mm. furlough scheme certainly has been a real help to um of course those um businesses and um, institutions that have needed it throughout uh, this uh, pandemic situation thus far seems you've certainly been very busy on uh, that front uh, as well there uh, helen with regards to um of course sort of government guidance throughout this um, entire pandemic situation as it were there's of course been a great deal of debate as to just sort of how clear that they've been both up to now and also in the future as we're starting to see more and more different industries reopening have you sort of been satisfied from that point of view throughout this that you fully understood exactly what's being expected of you? I, I, did, I did question a few sometimes, but I did fully understand the only problem that I came across was the furlough scheme when um, because the government, because the council sent us money for the uh, two, three, four-year-olds and they kept that going, uh, we then used that to actually um, pay some of my staff. So like I had 12 uh, staff um, and Six was on full furlough and six was on only 30% 30, 30, uh, furlough. The rest I topped up with the government money that was sent to myself. That did cause a bit of an issue in the beginning, um, trying to get my head around it. I had to work it all out and et cetera. But once it once going and once it was set up, I, I was okay with that. That's certainly um, encouraging to hear. And um, I suppose being, of course, the one running the um, the business, in uh, your case, running Tiddlywinks, um, it's quite natural for people sort of below you, hierarchically fellow employees, for example, to sort of look to you naturally as the one to provide that little bit of reassurance and direction at a time like this. But when there's sort of nobody really above you to look up to in your instance, I mean, where do you look to when you just need that little bit of inspiration and reassurance that you're sort of on the right track with everything? Uh, yeah, it's very difficult. I do listen um, to quite a lot. I ask um, relevant people in information and, and say, do you think this question, you know, I'll ask somebody a question, do you think this is the correct way? Um, because, yes, the book does stop at me. And sometimes that can be a bit of a 
difficult. Like when I had to deal with closing the nursery, it was a case of um, who am I trying to keep happy, happy here? Who am I trying to keep safe? And um, I did feel the pressure under that because, like I said, there's nobody else to. I do speak a lot to uh, the head of our early years, Neville Ward, uh, and ask him uh, is it is input if I need questions and also my manager Jenny Ellis uh, who is uh, extremely good and um, and my staff we're very open here at the small nursery and uh, I can rely on all the staff to you know we all make the decision together we as, as a small nursery you even let the children decide you know the children come in they're great uh, they come in they wash the hands they take shoes off they hang up anything they know to wash the hands they sing in the happy birthday happy birthday song as they're going along with the um, washing the hands which was quite funny at first because uh, you're not used to it on a constant level unless we add birthdays which we do and I kept thinking whose birthday is it today whose birthday is it then you know, instantly forgetting that that's what the song is that they, they were washing their hands with. The children have adapted brilliantly, I have to say. They're very good. That's very encouraging as well. And do you think that sort of some of the features that have come about as a result of the lockdown period that you spoke about earlier, do you think that some of those may end up being here to stay as we adjust to the new normal? Or do you think that it's going to be more of a reverting to sort of normal service under new safety procedures in your instance? Things will change. I mean, we took out the soft furniture, which we'll probably will not bring back now. Um, um, and that's obviously more hygienic and um, and easy to sanitise all the time. Um, further down the line, maybe things might get to event- uh, eventually get back to normal. Um, I will stick, stick to the uh, people dropping off at the door, like school. Uh, I do find that has helped benefit the children as well as the staff we can still you know speak to customers which we do and relate to the day the only thing that impacted us is obviously the baby room when it had little books which we explained to everybody what was happened but we have tapestry so um you know our customers go online and look at the children playing on the tapestry and we put information on there so that's uh, that was in going anywhere but we did have a book alongside so at the minute we're just not using paper so children can't do paintings for mums or just mum and dads and stuff like that uh, which is just a slightly different hoping that will eventually be able to be uh, put back normally. And thinking about what the new normal is going to bring over the sort of next 12 to 18 months for yourself and for Tiddlywinks Helen what do you view on the horizon uh, for you in the nursery and what do you really hope to achieve as we embrace the challenges of the new normal? Well hopefully we'll have um, I'm going to be doing a virtual online for new customers um, like I said, I'm, uh, we send the brochures and everything out online now. This is a new, new, new era for everybody. Um, as you said earlier, you know, working from home and doing things, obviously we can't do that. Uh, but going forward, I'm hoping, you know, we'll get full again. Uh, we have uh, in July, we've got, we've had a lot more this week in. We've had another 10 customers come back, which are happy to come back. In September, we have another 10 customers awaiting to come back. So, you know, hopefully we get back to being full again and uh, being able to employ a couple more people, being able to keep my staff, staff safe and, uh, you know, and employed, all 12 of them at the moment. So hopefully, fingers crossed, you know, everything looks good in the future. Be optimistic and the ethos is to laugh every day. 
Let's certainly hope so, Helen. Um, and hopefully there'll be some positive news to share um, over the course of the year, the next year or so. And I think it would actually be fantastic, given how informative it's been having you join us today, to catch up in future and have you back on the programme just to see how things are getting on in a few months. And maybe just we can reassess at that point exactly what the new normal is looking like and how not just stuff, but also the children are adapting to that as well. Yes, it will be a pleasure to give, to give you that feedback. It would be fantastic uh, for myself as well, Helen, to welcome you back on. It's been wonderful for myself and also from a listener's perspective having you join us today. I've thoroughly enjoyed our discussion. And uh, most importantly, until we do speak again, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on because we still don't know, of course, how the COVID-19 pandemic is going to pan out, whether there will be a second spike in cases. So let's keep our fingers crossed that it's going to be an upward trajectory from here and there will be some good news to share. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That was Helen Spink speaking, Managing Director of Tiddlywinks Day Nursery in Shropshire. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and of course a prominent Labour MP and Secretary of State formerly. Um, During his political career, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians among his generation holding various senior positions in the cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough in August of 2015. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. All of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways 
of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain, and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside 
the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere Uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required Uh, Those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would. People have criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm-hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food, a lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual, unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of 
private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you.
This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.